Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, where we feature the latest insights and perspectives from our faculty. Asian economies and their financial sectors have both shown great resilience and have undergone significant transformation over the last two decades. Not only have many Asian economies miraculously recovered from the 1997 crisis, many have doubled their GDP growth within 10 years. David Lee is the academic director of the Sim Kee-Boon Institute for Financial Economics at SMU and a professor of quantitative finance at the SMU Lee Kong Chin School of Business. Together with co-author Greg Gregorio, he recently published a two-volume book entitled The Handbook of Asian Finance. A comprehensive collection of articles by academics and practitioners, the book offers a broad and deep discussion on what's going on in Asia today. It also probes the sources of Asian wealth and the unique aspects of the infrastructure that supports them. In this podcast, Professor David Lee tells us more about his book and shares some of his insights into Asia's financial markets. Professor Lee, could you tell us more about this new book titled Handbook of Asian Finance, which you recently wrote? This handbook provides an overview of the financial developments in Asia that are of interest to both practitioners and academics. The Asian economies and their financial sectors have both shown great resilience and have undergone transformation over the last two decades. These economies have recovered from the 1997 Asian crisis. Eight East Asia economies namely China, Hong Kong SAR, Indonesia, Malaysia, South Korea, Philippines, Singapore and Thailand have doubled the total GDP from 2000 to 2010. Academic growth has attained an even higher plateau when compared with the pre-crisis level. This has allowed many Asian economies to build substantial foreign reserves providing buffers against the volatile global economic environment. I work in the financial industry for over 20 years and I observed many phenomena. When I was a visiting professor in SMU in 2013, I thought it was a good time to write and edit a book on Asia finance, covering a few areas of interest to academics and practitioners. So I contacted my co-editor Greg and we decided that we should invite a few people to contribute some chapters as well as writing a few chapters on our own with a focus on Asia. The idea of a project on Asia finance received a lot of good response. We are not surprised that we have gathered many expert practitioners and respected academics who have supported our research on Asia. In fact, as a result of the excellent response, we had to split our work into two volumes. The first volume focuses on financial markets and sovereign wealth funds. The second volume focuses on REITs, trading and fund performance. We have attempted in this book to cover the more interesting issues closer to the heart of financial practitioners and academics. The book serves as a perspective for what is going on in Asia and to bridge the gap caused by the fact that there remain few publications in Asia in academic journals. In your book, you talked about how different Asia is. Do you think there is enough academic research on finance done in this part of the world? Problems and issues associated with Asia finance and banks are not of particular interest to many academic journals. The main reason is that these issues are deemed to be only specific and relevant to financial institutions operating in Asia. As trade, foreign exchange and other transactions and income from Asia increase over time, 
many global financial institutions and especially banks are likely to increase their participation in the Asia financial sector along with a great share of profits from the Asian operations. By then, these Asia-centric issues will be of great interest to the global financial industry. Another often cited reason is the lack of reliable data. However, with higher volume of transactions, more reliable maintenance of historical records, which were both not available previously, there is now scope for more meaningful empirical analysis and discussions. In fact, some research by finance practitioners have already moved ahead of academics as there are not enough incentives to do academic research in this area. Which parts of this book did you write? Can you tell us more about it? Yes. I co-wrote a chapter with Professor Poon Kok Fai, which traced the history of development of Singapore's financial markets and discussed the challenges, future and prospects. Singapore has a good track record of its policymakers having a good understanding of how markets function and having the ability to create and maintain an ecosystem for growth. We look at the challenges facing the Singapore markets given the current volatile trading environment with potential problems caused by huge capital flow in a time-compressed manner. I have been witnessing and researching the changes that have been taking place in Asia since the early 1990s. The concept of time compression is still very new and I have been talking about this since year 2000. What I observe is that since 1990s, with the introduction of the internet, information flow has been much faster than before. As we progress through the years, capital flow has always sped up, and a huge volume of capital can flow in and out of a small open economy in quick time. It used to take a long time for research ideas to be disseminated because you had to first edit your report, send for printing, and then you mail them via traditional post in the early 1990s. If there were any market-breaking news, it would take the market days or even weeks to react because information took time to travel. With emails in the early 1990s, things were changing fast and we could see an email being sent via Bloomberg and the markets reacted immediately. At the same time, capital flows have also sped up. We see markets reacting in quick time much faster than before. And if we plot that on a price chart, we could see a few years being compressed into days and a few days being compressed into a few minutes. It is common to see traders sitting in a trading room doing nothing for days and then suddenly all the profits and losses are made in a few seconds. Time is more compressed now with newer technology, especially when crisis hit. I saw the impact of rapid capital flow causing huge damage to Asian economies during Asian crisis. I realized that traditional time domain econometric techniques using fixed time period to estimate relationship was not appropriate. You cannot use daily data to measure relationship if there is a crisis. We should be using hourly data or even shorter duration to have a meaningful measurement of relationship. You wrote a chapter about the possible causes of crisis in Singapore. Can you elaborate? The chapter that we wrote was about the possible causes of crisis in Singapore. Our recent growth is heavily dependent on real estate and leverage. We described the danger of an economy that has its growth heavily dependent on the real estate sector with leverage. We cautioned against using debts, derivatives, leverage, real estates 
and loans growth as a driver for economic growth. Another possible cause of crisis is when there is a failure of the collective imagination of many bright people, a phrase borrowed from the UK academics in response to Queen Elizabeth's question of why nobody had noticed that the credit crunch was on its way. We talk about the lack of communication and the exchange of information where technology has forced many of us to focus on our narrow interests and to do it well in the shortest possible time. Doing our job too well may self-organize ourselves into destruction, especially when we all react to a triggered event in the shortest possible time. We argue for policy to limit the speed of everything to the speed of human understanding or to slow to a speed that we can handle so as to minimize the damage caused by time compression during a crisis. In our book, we also argue for the use of macroprudential policy for the Singapore housing market given that mortgages account for 46% of Singapore GDP. Like throwing sand onto a slippery road, the gradual introduction of prudential policy in the housing market was a good strategy. Singapore introduced no fewer than 17 property measures since 1981. The more often, less drastic approach to sense the reaction of the market before introducing or removing further measure has a lot of merit in preventing a bubble or a collapse in a time-compressed world. I also co-wrote another chapter with Professor Francisco, Professor Poon Kok Fai and Xia Yi Seng, which discussed the development of Singapore Real Estate Investment Trust, or in short, S-REITs. We talk about the risk, return, performance and the growth potential. Singapore have 25 REITs listed and it had become one of the leading REIT centres in the world and ranked second only to Japan in Asia. Given that 80% of the residential market is in public housing and this sector is not represented in the REIT sector, we believe that there will likely be development of residential REITs for public housing in the near future, especially when the current run-up in prices has stabilised. What would be one key takeaway that you hope your readers will have after reading the book? Well, that will have to be the re-emergence of Asia, which is very important and interesting phenomenon to follow and to experience. We cannot leave the readers without highlighting the potential of Asia. In fact, it is very insightful to study how analysts and economists forecast Asia's growth over the next 40 years. Asia's share of global GDP was around 60%, before the start of the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s. Then the share gradually dropped to a low of 15% in the 1950s, before it climbed back to today's 28% in the past decade. Japan and newly industrialized countries led the growth in the 1950s, followed by the emergence of China and India in the 1980s. Currently, Asia accounts for 58% of world population with 20% of total land. While 2050 is some time away, analysts are forecasting that population will double to 6 billion. Asia cities are expected to account for 80% of GDP with urbanization rate increasing from 40% to 63%. In the convergence school, analysts have forecasted that Asian GDP should reach 174 trillion US dollar, accounting for 52% of world GDP with GDP per capita growing to $40,800. According to HSBC Global Research, China's per capita income is projected to grow 800% between 2012 and 2050, 
but this ratio of China's income per capita to the U.S. is still only 32% in 2050 as compared to 7% in 2012. In short, the focus is now on Asia, given the growth prospect of many Asian countries. Many of these countries are growing above 6%, despite the recent slowdown. Some have even achieved double-digit growth immediately after the 2008 crisis. Inter- and intra-regional trade with Asia will increase to 50% of world trade in the very near future, driving the demand for financial services and stimulating further financial innovation in Asia. What are the other insights and trends in the book which you might want to highlight? We wanted to provide a good overview on Asia and have therefore dedicated efforts in discussing a full range of subject matters, including banking, governance, sovereign wealth funds, REITs, trading and fund performance. Let me zoom in on a few areas. I will start with banking. With the transformation in relationship and increased linkages between real estate and banking sectors, interest to better understand the systematic risk of the bank's exposure to new alternative instruments have grown. Whether it is a systematic risk, default risk, litigation risk or other enterprise risk, banks are in a new era with regards to managing risk in an ever-changing and uncertain environment. Asian banks are buffered by different types of risk along with changes in their business models that are required to adapt to such volatile conditions. With higher revenue and availability of big data, there is an emergence of more complex and adaptive models for risk management. Asia is in the process of developing its own risk management techniques and technology, thus reversing the earlier trend of intellectual flow from the developed market to Asia. What is also interesting is that the percentage of Asia-Pacific high-level individuals has grown from 28% to more than 31% from 2007, with Singapore and Hong Kong growing the fastest and among the top five. While Switzerland, London and New York are among the top, China and Korea are catching up fast. With the growth in wealth, there's also evidence to suggest that with higher bank lending, property prices are also increasing in tandem. Let us now move on to sovereign wealth funds. With the lessons learned from the previous crisis, Asian governments have improved the resilience of their economies to external shocks. They have increased their foreign reserve and have reduced their dependence on short-term loans denominated in foreign currencies. These short-term foreign loans were used to finance domestic borrowings for the domestic economic growth. Supported by strong economic growth and trade surpluses, Many Asian economies have been able to build out huge foreign reserves managed by sizable sovereign wealth funds. Sovereign wealth management issues including the setting of investment objectives, constraints, horizon, liquidity needs, allocation and users have drawn attention. This is mainly because of the increasing impact such funds can have when being deployed overseas. Every move of such funds is closely watched by many in the world and our work here attempts to give an insight of some of the investment philosophy and the problems that they face in execution. It is interesting to note that results suggest that the size of the reserve in Asian countries may, may have expanded rapidly to a point beyond optima based on economic measurement of vulnerability, confidence and adverse shocks. Transparency remains an issue in most sovereign wealth funds, but they are good stabilizers for financial markets. I have something to talk about REITs as well. In a lower interest rate environment, alternative assets like real estate investment trusts have been very much in the limelight. 
In many aspects, this REIT sector in Asia has taken on a life of its own. Many have accused that REITs have caused rental to go up, thus affecting the bottom line of many businesses. The findings in the books are that REITs managers tend to invest in their home countries a lot more, and the strategy pays with high average returns. While Asian REITs accounts for 12% of the global REIT market, with a capitalization of over 120 billion US dollars, there's still a lot of scope to grow, and there's reward for taking on illiquidity risk of real estate investment. Thank you, Professor.